I, I do want to continue the journey we've started going through the book of Colossians, and we've come to an interesting part in the book, and I'm not sure I've ever heard this particular passage preached on. I certainly know that as I studied it, uh, I realized that there's no way in a 30-minute time frame to exegete and to explain and declare the truths that are in this passage of Scripture in, in, in their entirety because there, there's just so much here. So I'm, I've, I'm, I've tried to kind of do a Reader's Digest version of what I think the most important parts are, and I want you to listen carefully, especially those of you who were just starting your walk with the Lord. Um, there are a lot of traps in front of you. The devil will set a lot of traps in front of you, and sometimes those, he, he baits those traps and makes those traps uh, look awfully attractive, when in reality, it's, 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 it's a trap. Um, and uh, so looking at this passage of Scripture today, I wanted to break this down and I wanted to, to approach you with, you with this thought that there are three threats to your spiritual freedom that you need to be aware of. How many of you love walking in freedom? You don't like bondage, bondage of any kind. Well, I don't know about you, but when I think of the word, you know, the word freedom, what comes to, to my mind is, is that last scene in Braveheart. You remember? And, uh, and, and they're, you, okay, somebody's laughing. They know what I'm talking about. You know, they're trying to get Mel Gibson to, to uh, acknowledge that he has uh, offended the, the crown of England and that, you know, and this kind of stuff. And instead, as he gets ready to speak, he, he kind of raises up and yells as loud as he can, Freedom! Well, that's what boils in my heart. I'm all about freedom. I don't want to see anybody walk around in bondage of any kind, whether it's bondage to drugs, bondage to lust, or bondage to religion. I don't want to see anybody walk in bondage because we are not created again in Christ Jesus, made brand new in Christ to walk in bondage. He has created us to live in freedom. And freedom is, the I believe, it's, it's the deepest cry of our heart. We want to be free. We need to be free. And in Christ, we have been made free. Let's don't give that up by surrendering to a spiritual threat. Amen? We hear a lot of, uh, about the loss of religious liberty in America, especially over these last few years. We've heard about people losing their businesses and losing their jobs because they refuse to compromise their religious beliefs. We've heard about the Christian clubs who have been thrown off of college campuses because they wouldn't permit non-Christians to become officers in those clubs. We have heard uh, stories about authorities who are demanding that pastors give them copies of their sermons. We've heard all kinds of stories about the threats that are being made to our religious liberty. And we have a right and we have a responsibility to speak out against those kinds of things. And I think this past election, that was part of our response as the people of America. We spoke out and said enough stomping on our religious liberties. And we voted against that. But a far greater concern to me than the loss of religious liberties are three threats to spiritual freedom that Paul talks about here in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And I'm going to encourage you, if you will, when you get home after hearing this message, it's going to raise a lot of questions in your mind. And that's, that's never a bad thing. If you need to, to text me or get on Facebook and message me about some questions that have been raised in your minds about this passage of Scripture, feel free to ask me those questions. Because a far greater concern to me than the loss of religious liberty is the fact that there are threats to our spiritual freedom. And Paul mentions these in this passage of Scripture. You see, and this is the reality. Uh, attempts at political repression, attempts at stealing or, or, or thwarting religious liberty in a, in, a, in a nation usually results in a bolder proclamation of the gospel. As hard, for instance, as hard as the Chinese government is trying to stomp out Christianity in China, the harder they try, the faster and the deeper Christianity grows in China. The same thing would happen here. Sometimes I think we need a little persecution to get us off of our rear ends and, and, and get honest with God. But you see, usually, usually the harder a government tries to stamp out the gospel, the farther and the deeper the gospel goes in the hearts of the people. That's just the reality. But the threats to spiritual freedom that we're talking about today, the threats to spiritual freedom that Paul's talking about here, 
it's not just a political repression of liberty, it's a spiritual threat to our freedom. The, the, the threats that he talks about here will poison the purity and the power of the gospel as God intends it to work in our lives. The three threats that we're going to talk about today, and I've never heard a message on these things, so it, it's a little weird to me to be bringing this up, but I think it's important enough that we should. The three threats, you, you could name them by these names. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. These have always been threats to Christianity from day one. There have been false teachings that have risen up from different sources trying to steal the spiritual freedom we have in Christ through these three means. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. You see, the true gospel says this. You and I are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ who died on the cross and was raised to new life. That is the gospel. That's a, that's, it's such a simple thing but we try to make it more complicated. We are saved by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to take anything away from it. I'm not sure you can take anything away from it. It's so simple. It is the, the, it, this is the simple gospel. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ who died for us and was raised again to new life. But legalism says this. Legalism says that I am saved or I am made more holy by what I do or don't do. I need more than Jesus to save me. I need some rules to help me stay saved or be saved. Mysticism says I'm saved, but I need more than just see Jesus to save me. I need to experience something else. I need to have a deeper experience with the Lord. I need to have a more mystical experience with the Lord. I need to have feelings that I'm saved. Asceticism says, I'm saved, but I will be more saved, I will be more holy if I give up something, if I sacrifice more, if I give away all the pleasures in life. And as we go through this, I hope to explain a little bit more what I'm talking about and how these threats still are working against us to steal from us the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. In effect, this is, this is where we're going, in effect, these things, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, these things threaten our spiritual freedom because these things take our eyes off of Jesus and put them somewhere else. They take our eyes off of Jesus, and they take our eyes off of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and it puts our focus on who we are and what we can do. That's the threat to our freedom. These things threaten our relationship with Jesus, and they turn our relationship with Jesus into religion. Religion. Religion is man reaching out to God by his own efforts. But the gospel is God by his grace reaching out to man. Follow me. Religion is man trying to climb up the ladder of his own self-righteousness with the hope of meeting God at that top rung. But the gospel is this. The gospel is God coming down the ladder in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and meeting us as sinners at the lowest rung. That's the difference. That's the difference. Religion is about us and our attempts to make ourselves more holy, make ourselves feel more saved. But that's religion, but relationship is what we're after. And that's what God's after. Now whether it comes in the form of legalism or mysticism or asceticism, Religion will kill your spiritual freedom. Listen to me. Religion, your self-effort, will kill your, religious free, your, your spiritual freedom. And here's why. Because it demands, it demands that we obey God from the outside without any real change of nature from the inside. It's all about externalities, not about what's really going on in your heart. I'm telling you, you want to lose your freedom? Become religious. Become caught up in all the external things. 
and the freedom that you were intended to live in, you'll see it erode and be taken from you. Follow me. Let's read the passage of Scripture and we'll get into it a little bit deeper. Are you guys with me so far? Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There is no way in 30 minutes I could break that passage of Scripture down and go into all that it means and all that it's talking about, so you're just going to have to bear with me, take this Reader's Digest version, and use it as a starting point for your own examination and study of these Scriptures. Will you do that? Let's talk about these three threats real quick. Father, we love you so much, we give you the glory. There's not a person in this room that wants to go back to any form of bondage. You have set us free by the, by, the, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because of anything we have done, but because of what you have done for us. Lord, we don't want to go back to any form of bondage. We certainly don't want to go back to a life of sin. We certainly don't want to go back to a life of addiction. We don't want to go back there, but God, neither do we want to go back and get trapped in all the stuff that surrounds religion. We don't need that either. You've called us to be in relationship with you, a living relationship in which we walk by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. Our eyes are focused on you and you alone for hope, for, for, for life, for peace. We want to stay focused on you and not on anything else. We cannot afford to be distracted. No matter how sweet a promise religion seems to offer, it will only lead us back into bondage. Help us to stay free. Help us to stay free by staying focused on you and what you have done and who you are. We love you, Jesus. Give us ears to hear, a heart to understand. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk about this first threat, this threat of legalism for just a minute. Legalism says I am saved by what I do or what I don't do. You see, here's the, pro here's the thing with legalism. It adds to the gospel of grace all kinds of little qualifying clauses. It adds to the gospel of grace all kinds of little qualifying clauses. I am saved by grace if I go to church every Sunday. I am saved by grace if I pray to God every day. I am saved by grace if I don't smoke. I'm saved by grace if I don't drink. I'm saved by grace if I don't cuss. Legalism always adds a little clause. I am saved by grace if. No, no, no. You're either saved by grace or you're not saved at all. The church has always struggled with this threat of legalism. Always. In Paul's day, they were called Judaizers. You read about them in the book of Galatians. They said you're saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, but first you have to be circumcised and, and submit to all the Jewish uh, laws and commandments. So if you want to know, uh, uh, get into a, a, a broader understanding of what was going on here, just go, go home today and read the book of Galatians, and you'll find out real quick, Paul was saying, you know what, I wish those false teachers would just go and emasculate themselves, but leave the people of God alone. It was such a threat. The Bible speaks as much about legalism as it does about lying in adultery. The church has always struggled with this threat of legalism. And it, it, so often we want to judge ourselves and each other by our outward behavior. 
But Paul says in verses 16 and 17, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Don't let anyone judge you by those external, rea- those external behaviors. Don't even allow yourself to judge yourself by those external uh, uh, behaviors. It's not what's going on out here that matters. It's what's going on in here that matters. The word therefore is always an important word when you study the Bible. The word therefore means that these verses only conclude what's already been stated before in the prior verses. And the verses, if you remember, leading up to the verses we've read today make clear, and Paul has emphasized again and again, that Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. If you read the verses leading up to these we've read today, you will see that Paul is making this emphasis again and again. It's in Christ we are saved. It's in Christ that we have been made alive. It's in Christ that we have been adopted into God's family. It's in Christ that we are changed, that we are transformed. It's in Christ that we are made complete and lack nothing. It's in Christ we enjoy fellowship with God, forgiveness for our sins, and freedom from all our enemies. It's in Christ and Christ alone. We don't depend on anything else. We don't depend on anyone else. Christ is enough. And therefore, Paul says, don't let anyone judge your spiritual life by their external standards. We are not saved by meeting any of these external standards. We are not saved by what we do or don't do. We're not saved by keeping rules. We're saved by the work of God in our life. It's his work, not ours, that saves us. Legalism is really dangerous, and it's a threat because it gives power to man, not to God. Follow me here. Legalism gives, its, it gives power to man, not God. You see, when we focus on rules and regulations, we're taking the focus off of Christ and on the man who makes the rules and the regulations. Does that make sense? So you are taking power from God who wants to be in relationship with you directing your life, you're walking with him, walking by the Spirit, and instead of walking by the Spirit, you're going to start looking to Mark to tell you what to do. You're in trouble if you're asking me to tell you what to do. I've got my ideas about what to do because I'm trying to walk with God myself and trying to figure this thing. You don't need to give me any power. I don't want any power over your life. Let God have power over your life to tell you how you should live. That's what his word is all about. All I can do is point you back to his word, which clearly outlines and articulates how he wants his people to live. That's all I've got. That's all you've got. We've got the same, and together, maybe we can together come to an understanding of it, but don't look to me or to Cindy or anybody else to establish the rules you should live by. God has clearly laid out his expectations for us in his word. Amen? Don't give power to man. Let God have the power. Listen, if you give power to man, not God, it's a a form of idolatry called people-pleasing. And you're never going to make the people in your life happy. Because one person's going to have a different set of rules and expectations. Another person's going to have another set of rules and expectations. Lord, have mercy. Get your eyes on Jesus. At least you know where he stands. That's one of the dangers of legalism. Another is this. It gives people a false sense of security. It gives people a false sense of security. Just because you can keep all the rules doesn't mean you have a relationship with Christ Jesus. It may mean you just caved into peer pressure. We go into our recovery meetings, and we know we can probably right now in our minds uh, think of some of those that we call uh, white knucklers. They're sober. Not going to drink today. Not going to drink today. Not going to drink today. They may be abstinent, but they're not sober. It's the same way in Christian circles. People going through all the motions, they got the religious stuff down. They wear the t-shirts, they got the bumper stickers. They can say hallelujah at the right time. Keeping all the rules, 
They don't smoke, don't drink, don't go with people that do. Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean they're in a relationship with Jesus. It just means they're caving into the peer pressure around them. You have to be in relationship for yourself with Christ Jesus. You cannot live your relationship with Christ through me or through anyone else. You have to have your own relationship with Christ. You yourself personally must be saved by grace through your faith in Christ. So, but, but I'm afraid that just because we keep rules, sometimes it gives us a false sense of security. I'm doing all the right stuff. I must be okay with God. Maybe not. Maybe not. Another danger with legalism is it promotes a superficial kind of spirituality. Legalism promotes a superficial spirituality. You know, it's easier to keep rules than it is to deal with the issues of your heart. It's easier to put on clothes that meet the dress code than it is to put on the righteousness of Christ. Let me get to the right page here. Legalism distracts us from all the real discipleship that God wants to work in us, all the real change he wants to take us through, because, hey, I'm keeping all the rules. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I can keep all the rules. Well, are you really clothing yourself with compassion? Are you really putting on or, or becoming more humble? Are you really becoming more Christ-like, or are you just learning to be a better rule keeper because when you step out of line, somebody slaps your hand? Listen. We don't need superficial spirituality anymore. We need heart change. We need our hearts to be changed. We need to be, need to be changed from the inside out. And legalism distracts us sometimes from really allowing God to change our hearts, change our natures, change our desires. Galatians 5.1 says this, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. And don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. I see so many good people turning back to the law thinking somehow it's making me more saved. Somehow this is making me more holy. It's about your relationship with the Lord. It's not about how strong and tight you can hold on to religious rules. A lot more to say. Let's move on. Threat two, mysticism. Pentecostals, sometimes I'm afraid, charismatics. And really in America today, so much of our Christianity is tied up with the way we're feeling. It's all about our emotional response. And I, I'll say this, I want you to know that when you encounter a supernatural God, there is going to be an emotional response to that. So there's nothing wrong with that emotional response unless your emotions begin to rule the well-being of your spiritual walk with God. Follow me. Mysticism says, I am saved by what I experience. I am made more holy by by the kinds of experiences I have. In verse 18, Paul says, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Mysticism basically says, I'm saved by what I experience. I am saved because I've been slain in the Spirit. I am saved because I've spoken in tongues. I am saved because I've spoken with angels. I am saved because I've had a vision about God. I am saved because I feel really close to God right now. It's all about what we have experienced, what we feel, the way our emotions are right now. Bible teacher Warren Wearsby says this. He defines mysticism this way. He says, mysticism is the belief that a person can have an immediate experience with the spiritual world completely apart from the Word of God or the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The belief that a person can have an immediate experience with the spiritual world completely apart from the Word of God or the Holy Spirit. And that's the problem with mysticism. It's subjective. It's not objective. It detaches itself from the Word of God or the Holy Spirit, and it makes the experience itself the defining factor in your walk with God. It's often about our feelings and emotions, not the, necessarily the truth. It's about our imagination sometimes, and not about, it's not always based in reality. Listen, we, we really can't trust our emotions or experiences, can we? 
I mean, how many times, how often have we felt like something was true, only we find out that it wasn't true at all? Sure felt good at the time. Seemed right at the time. Seemed legitimate at the time. But then, a couple days later, you're looking back on it thinking, man, I was a fool. And I was misled. Listen, here's the deal. Every experience we have with God, and I hope you have many, every experience we have with God, no matter how emotionally satisfying, should be grounded and evaluated by the Word of God. It's not an experience that you can have apart from it being grounded, founded, and evaluated by the Word of God. doesn't matter how good it makes you feel. It's not necessarily from God and of God, and it doesn't necessarily help you in your walk with God. Every experience we have with God, no matter how emotionally satisfying, should be grounded and evaluated by the Word of God. Otherwise, we might find out it was just the result of eating too much pizza the night before. And I'm telling you, you can have some really good visions of God. Late at night when stomach's rumbling. Mysticism is dangerous because of this. Listen, mysticism is dangerous because of this. It gives power to our emotions and not the truth. Mysticism is dangerous. This idea that I, I live by my experiences rather than the word of God. Mysticism is dangerous because it gives power to our emotions, which are so easily misled, and not to the truth, the truth of God's word. If emotions say I'm saved, then I must be saved. What does that mean? That means if emotions, if you don't feel like you're saved, you must not be saved. If you're basing your salvation, your walk with God, your salvation experience with God by the way you feel, how many of you don't feel saved all the time? Our emotions, they come and they go, don't they? I remember walking for two years and I felt, I didn't feel God at all. And I was in ministry, had a great, great ministry going on with young people, had over 100 kids in my youth group, things were going great guns, and I would sit in services, and while everybody else was raising their hands and worshiping the Lord, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I was going through the motions to be perfectly honest, I had my hands up too and singing the same songs, but inside my heart, nothing, nothing. Does that mean I wasn't saved for those two years? It's almost two years. No, I was just as saved. It's just that the Lord was dealing with me on some things that I needed to deal with him about, about who I was depending on for ministry, who I was depending on to do, because I, I, I could, I'm getting off on a side track. Let me just tell you, there comes a day in your Christian, listen, in your walk with the Lord, I promise you there's going to come a day where God doesn't seem as close today as he used to. Does that mean your salvation no longer is valid? Does that mean somehow God has turned his back on you and walked away from you? Does it mean he no longer counts you among his sons and his daughters because you don't feel like it anymore? No, that doesn't mean that at all. Your salvation won't depend on your experiences. It won't depend on your emotions. Your salvation depends on what the Word of God says about it. It's on what He calls you. When He looks at you, He says, you're my son and my daughter. You may not feel like it right now, but that's okay. You still are who I say you are. And it keeps you hanging in there when, if you listen to your emotions, you bail and walk away. Listen, mysticism is dangerous because it gives power to our emotions, not the truth. If emotions say I'm saved, then I must be saved. If emotions say I'm not saved, then I've got to work up my emotions until I feel saved again. I've seen it way too often. So here's what we do. We climb on board this emotional roller coaster to somehow get that good religious feeling back again. And we'll chase him from one end of the planet to the other, trying to get that good feeling going again. But the Bible says he's just as close as the mention of his name, right? <laughs> it's crazy. We get trapped. It's almost like a drug. I call them Jesus addicts. I really do. I call them Jesus addicts. They want that first fix again. 
Remember that first initial experience you had with Christ? What a rush it was to feel that sin washed away. And it's like some of us get sent on a quest for the rest of our life to get that feeling back again. Instead of allowing your relationship with the Lord to deepen and mature, we want the rush. We want the infatuation. Does that make sense? So we go on this endless quest to get that feeling back again. It doesn't happen to all of us, but it happens to enough of us that it really does concern me, and it sounds like it concerned Paul too. You know, here's what happens. We climb on board that emotional roller coaster in order to gin up those good religious feelings again, or we just quit trying, we give up, we walk away. How many of of us have been in that position before? We didn't feel like it anymore, so I'm gone. I'm tired of trying. That's the problem. You're trying. Let God hold on to you, and you hold on to God by faith in what he has said. Stop trying to gin up these emotions. Just love God as best you can, because I guarantee you, he's going to love you as best he can, and he's not letting go. He's not letting go. We try so hard. We try, we work, we're trying to gin up these feelings, we're trying to, and God's just saying, let me love you, just rest in me, let me love you. We're on this endless quest thinking somehow I'm going to satisfy God if I do this and if I do that, and God said, I'm already satisfied with you, just rest in me, let me work in your life. And even those times when I seem like I've withdrawn myself, I haven't withdrawn myself, I'm still there but I am stirring up a hunger in your heart for more of me and more intimacy with me. Let me tell you how I broke free of that two years, that two-year dry spot I had a call, the wilderness experience where it felt like God had kind of stepped to the side and left me all alone in this ministry thing. I picked up my Bible and started reading it for me again and not for ministry. Preachers, you know what I'm talking about. The Bible to me became a, a sermon source book. For those two years, that's really the way I saw it. If I, I went to the Bible to get a sermon for Wednesday night. But what God showed me after, because I'm hard-headed, it took him two years to get the point across. What he showed me was, man, this is the bread of life. This is what you need, not for ministry, but to live your life for me. This word, you read it for yourself. Let Digest this word for yourself, not in order to help somebody else, but digest this word to build yourself up. And from the overflow of that, then, you're able to, listen, it's, I, I don't learn easily. I, you know, I'm really hard-headed. But anyway, uh, where am I? Um, mysticism gives power to emotions, not truth. Here's what it does, and this, this is where I find let me get really blunt here. I am, I've been Pentecostal all my life. All my life. I believe that every gift that's given to us in the New Testament is a gift that we can, uh, that, that God intends to give his body today, including the gifts of tongues and interpretation. The power gifts, all those gifts are available to us today. But what I have seen so often in my experience with the Pentecostal uh, fellowships is that we have made an idol out of our emotions. I mean, unless Granny Jones is up here singing and dancing and Bobby Penn's flying out of her head, unless there's snot coming out of our nose, God can't be moving. Come on, those have been, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, those are the signs we, when God's really moving, there's going to be tears everywhere. People are going to be shouting. How many of you know that God can move when it's completely still? where there's no outward demonstration of emotion at all. God can still be moving. I've been in services in this place where a pin, you could hear a pin drop, and I knew in my spirit, God's doing something deep, and I don't understand it. I don't know what exactly it is, but man, he's moving more powerfully right now than I've ever seen him move before, and there wasn't one tear shed. There wasn't one uh, loud shout. Nobody speaking in tongues, but I knew God was witnessing. There is something going on here. we got to stop relying on our emotions as some kind of bellwether about where, where we stand with the Lord. We can make our emotions an idol if we're not careful. And that is bondage. That is bondage. 
The second danger about mysticism is this. It gives power to the experiences of other people. It gives power to the experiences of other people. If someone claims to have a vision from God, then God forbid that you question it. I've gotten to the point now where if somebody walks up to me and says, the Lord spoke to me and said, I just go ahead and say, well, I can't argue with the Lord. I don't care how stupid it is, the statement that you're about to make. I've had them come up to me here in Calera, say the Lord spoke to me and said that I need to divorce my wife. And I have responded, well, I know what the word of God says, but hey, I can't argue with the Lord. If you think the Lord spoke to you and said divorce your wife, you can go ahead and be stupid and think that's the Lord and do what you think you're going to do. But, but somehow we, 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 we give power to the experiences of others. When they come and they say they've had a vision from God, we can't argue with them. Because if you do, Lord have mercy. You're not a believer. I believe in the word of God. I don't believe in that what you just share with me. But I'm a believer in the word of God. It, it doesn't matter how unscriptural it might be. Come on, all right. God spoke to me and said that you need to buy me, church, a $64 million airplane. He laid it on my heart to tell you, you need to buy me a $64 million jet airplane. And if you're not a critical thinker, don't know what the Word of God says, you're going to buy into that nonsense and put yourself in financial straits as you go out and make donations on your credit card to help me get that $64 million airplane that I said the Lord laid on my heart for you to pay for. Well, that would never happen. Happens all the time, doesn't it? And who are you to argue with a man of God? Who are you to argue with what the Lord has spoken to me? You see how that works? It gives power to the experiences of other people. Or you find yourself judging your walk with God in the light of other people's experiences with God. Why don't I speak in tongues? What have I ever done to God that he wouldn't give me the gift of tongues? Why can't I hear God's voice? He seems to hear God's voice all the time. Why can't I hear that voice? What's wrong with me? You see how that works? Come on, y'all. Don't allow mysticism to threaten your spiritual freedom. 1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You know how you test the spirits? You go to the Word of God. Go to the Word of God. That's why I keep telling you over and over again, you've got to be in the Word of God. I want you to examine everything I say in the light of the Word of God. I don't want you to take what I say uh, and, and just run with it. I want you to examine it through the lens of Scripture to see whether or not I tell, what I tell you is true. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Don't get caught up in the threat of, uh, don't lose your spiritual freedom to this threat of mysticism. The third threat, quickly. I'm losing you, I feel. Quickly, asceticism. I, I see this as well. Asceticism. I'm saved by what I give up. I am saved by what I sacrifice. I am more holy if I give up more, sacrifice more. You see, asceticism focuses on extreme forms of personal denial. Asceticism teaches that true spirituality comes only through self-denial. Only through self-denial. In other words, it says, the only truly spiritual people are the ones who give away all their worldly possessions and take a vow of poverty. The only truly saved believers, it says, are the ones who reject all forms of worldly entertainment and remove themselves completely from the influences of the world around them. The only real Christians, it would say, are the ones who become a monk or a nun and go off to live in a monastery. You think, well, man, that doesn't happen anymore. That used to happen back in the medieval times. Can I tell you, it happens all the time. And sometimes we're guilty of presenting it that way. Who do you think are the most holy people on the planet? Who do you think is more holy? Little test. Who is more holy in the eyes of God? Mike Scaff who is married to Kathy and doing the best he can to provide for his wife, his family, trying to be that husband, that father that God has called him to be here in America, 
Mike Scaff or my friend David Stewart? David Stewart is my age. And he, upon graduation from college, walked away from what could have been a very uh, profitable life in business. Instead, he walked away from that, and he went to India and spent 25 years laboring there in India as an evangelist, going into places people had never heard the gospel and preaching the gospel. Who is more holy in the eyes of God, Mike Scaff or David Stewart? Your instinct is to say, David, he gave up everything. Gave up all that business career and walked away from That's our, that's, come on, how many, fess up. You're tempted to say that. Not true at all. Mike is doing what God has called him to do in the place that God has called him to do it, and he is just as saved and just as holy and will be just as rewarded as my friend David Stewart, who is also saved by grace through faith in Christ, called to be a missionary, and he just obediently followed the Lord. He's not any more holy, any more saved, any more called than my friend Mike Scaff, but yet we have it in our minds. I've got to, the more I give up, the more saved and holy I'm going to be and the happier I'm going to make God. We have, uh, unfortunately, sometimes it comes across that way from up here. And I apologize if it ever does. But that is, at its heart, this idea of asceticism. The more I sacrifice, the happier God's going to be with me. The more pain I suffer in this life, the more holy I'm going to be. The more I give up, the more blessed I'm going to be. It's not true at all. It's not true at all. That's a lie. It's a trap that we get into. And so often what we found out, and I've seen this for myself, as a kid growing up, there would be people who walked away from their lives in America to become missionaries in India, thinking somehow, somehow they were going to make God happier, somehow they were going to feel more called and feel more saved and feel more holy by being a missionary in India, only to get over to India, and they are the worst missionaries in the world. They are tearing churches up rather than building churches up because they are not doing what God has called them to do. Does that make sense? We find ourselves doing that a lot. I find myself meeting lots and lots of pastors who don't need to be pastors. Lots and lots of people who are thinking they're in the will of God, and they're tearing things up rather than building things up, because they're not doing what God has called them to do. To do. But they've done it out of the spirit of asceticism. If I do this, God will be happy. Followers, listen, let, let, let me get back. I've kind of drifted off here. Followers of Christ, no doubt about it. Luke chapter 9. Jesus says that to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. There's no doubt about it that there is an element of self-denial to this life with Jesus. But asceticism takes it to the extreme. We all need to exercise self-discipline in our life. We all need to abstain from sin and even the appearance of sin. But asceticism leads people to believe that the more painful their life is, or the more pleasure they sacrifice, the more spiritual they will become. And we have seen this played out in history. The very first Christian monk, for instance, a guy named Anthony, he moved out into the desert, and he vowed to never wash his feet or change his clothes. And it's no wonder he lived alone for the rest of his life in a cave. Okay, there was another guy named Simeon Stylites. He spent 36 years sitting at the top of a 50-foot pole, which brings a whole new meaning to the word piles. Martin Luther. Martin Luther became a monk. We all know about Martin Luther. We know the story of Martin Luther after he gave his life to Christ. Martin Luther became a monk, and he went without food. He denied himself every kind of pleasure. Martin Luther would spend four hours a day confessing his sins to other priests. How many of you would like to see Martin Luther walk in your way? Oh, Lord, he's coming again. I've got to block out four hours of time, and he's about to tell me what's wrong. Oh, Lord, I can just imagine. He had no friends, I can imagine. But in spite of all that he sacrificed and all that he gave up, Martin Luther never felt released from his guilt until he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17 which says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And it was at that moment the Holy Spirit spoke to Martin Luther and 
Martin Luther came to understand that we are made right with God through faith in Christ's works, not of our own. In Christ we find forgiveness. In Christ we find peace. It's not in our works, in our efforts, and in sacrifices, our sacrifices. It's in what Christ has done for us. You see, the, the danger of asceticism is this. It makes you believe that you have to sacrifice more, that you have to give up more, that you have to endure more pain in order to be saved, in order to become more holy, because it's never enough. It's never enough. You can't sacrifice enough to make you feel better about your shame and guilt. It doesn't work. Some of us have tried. We have spent our entire life trying to make up for what we did, and you can't make it up. You can't go back and fix it. You can't take care of the sin and guilt in your heart by trying to do more, give up more, sacrifice more. All you can do is hang on to the cross and say, Jesus, you love me, you died for me, you, wrote, you rose again to make me right with God, I'm going to trust in you, that's enough. That's all I got. That's all I got. Paul says in, verse, in verses 20 through 23, and this is what I want to close with, he gives us a new perspective and a new attitude about all this. Paul says in verses 20 through 23, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Does any of us still belong to the world? Anybody? Who do we belong to now? We live by a whole different set of rules. We died to the, to the rules of the world, right? Why do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Let me finish up by saying this. You see, in Christ we gain a new perspective. We gain a completely new perspective. The world says that we get to God by trying harder. The world says that we get to God by giving up more. The world says we have to earn our way to heaven the hard way. The world says that the more painful life is, the closer we must be to Jesus. But in Christ, listen, in Christ, we have died to this world. We have died to its silly notions of religion. And we understand we've gained a new perspective. Salvation is a gift. Would you say that with me? Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. Does this child who receives this gift, do, do we expect anything in return from that child? No, it's a gift. It's a gift. How's this child going to receive this gift? How's this child going to receive this gift? Take it? Then what? Is he just going to keep the box? Oh, that's nice. Thank you. What's he going to do? Don't do it. Don't open it. But that's what you would do next, right? You'd open it up. you start looking at it. And then, more than likely, probably start crying or laughing. There'd be some kind of emotional response. Nothing wrong with emotions. And then I'm sure there would be a thing. Can this really be mine? Can this really be mine? Yes, it's really yours! And we're not taking it back. It's yours. Did you have to work for it? Did you have to earn it? All you had to do was what? Man alive, can we get that? It's a gift. Stop trying so hard. Start, stop thinking, I've got to work for this. I've got to, no, no, no. All you got to do is receive it and then walk in it and let the freedom of it set you free. Let the power of it set you free. That's all it is. We make it so much more than that. We try to complicate it. That's the new perspective that we've been given. It's not about me earning anything. It's about me accepting all that's mine in Christ Jesus, and enjoying it, and enjoying it, because that's the second part of this. It gives us a new attitude. There's a new attitude that comes into play here. There's a new attitude. You see, rather than living a life of morbid introspection, where you're constantly beating yourself up for the things that you have done wrong, and constantly living in the regrets of the past, Constantly thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I still so imperfect? Why do I still struggle? Why, why, why do I feel so defeated? Analyzing every thought in your mind, analyzing every stupid choice you make. I'm never going to be right. 
Oh, God. God. How can he forgive me? Man, we've got a whole new attitude about, I know, I, I know, if I'll just give that up. I'll just give it up. I'll just never do that again. I'll walk away from it. I'll just give it up. It makes me happy. I enjoy it. And, and, and it's legitimate happiness. It brings joy to my heart. But I'll do that. And God will see that. God will see how sincere I am. And Christ gives us a whole new attitude about life. Listen, it's not a life that's intended to be lived in morbid introspection about the regrets and the poor choices and the wrong stuff in your life. God's not trying to stamp out the joy in your life. Listen, God's not trying to remove every last trace of pleasure in your life. He's not asking you to sacrifice anything that brings a smile to your face. Instead, what he is saying to you is this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. It's about enjoying this life that the Lord has given you. It's about walking in its fullness and in its freedom. It's not about saying, well, I know he'll be happy with me if I just stand here handcuffed, never to move again. I will take a vow of silence and never open my mouth again. Doesn't that make you want to talk more anyway? <laughs> yeah? Man, Christ is all about us enjoying life. I'm not saying indulging in sensual pleasure. He wants us to enjoy this life he has given us. Listen, this is what 1 Timothy 6.17 says. It says, he is God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Religion says, no, God wants to take everything for his enjoyment. He's a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't like you. He never will like you. And he's going to make your life miserable. That's not what the Bible says. I have come that you might have life and have it to the... Does that mean you get to drive a Cadillac? Hallelujah. No! It means you get to live a life of freedom and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what that means. And that's worth way more than a Cadillac. That's what he's all about. He is all about us enjoying life, finding contentment in the blessings that he lavishes on us because he loves us. We are his children. We are free to enjoy this life not to, not to squander these blessings on ourselves. He makes that really clear in his word. He doesn't bless us so we can just hold it to ourselves. He's so, he, no, he wants us to experience these blessings and enjoy these blessings so we can pass them on to others. He forgives us so that we can forgive others. He loves us so we can. You see how that works? That's how it's supposed to work. You, it's really hard to love other people when you're sitting on top of a 50-foot pole for 36 years kind of makes that part of living for Christ difficult, does it not? But that's what so many of us do. We retreat to our little, I call them Christian ghettos. We put on our Christian shirts. We watch our Christian movies and we listen to our Christian music. And we wonder why people think we're weird. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being weird in a good sense of weird. Following Christ will make you appear weird. And we shouldn't be weird because of all the external stuff. We should be weird because of what's going on inside our hearts, right? <sighs> See, there's so many ways to take this. I've got to stop. Galatians puts it this way. 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Don't feed that old man. Don't let that old man have the best of you. Instead, serve one another in love. Serve, listen, honestly, if we were to ask most non-Christians to describe Christianity, what would they probably say? They'd probably say that Christianity is a joyless religion. They'd probably say to be a Christian, you have to subscribe to a lot of rules, and you have to give up anything fun. Can I just say this? 
that's, I, I, this is why I love the New Year's Eve thing we do here. The New Year's Eve thing is such a blast because we come and we cut up from 8 o'clock to midnight and, and beyond. Just playing games. Sometimes it's karaoke. We will definitely watch a football game because it will be on the screen. And I have driven so many people home. I used to drive the van to work release and back. They don't let us do that anymore, or I'd still be doing it. But I'll never forget driving the work release guys home after one of our New Year's Eve parties several years ago. And they said, you know what? I've never had that kind of fun before. I didn't think you could have fun without being drunk. I didn't know that you could have fun without feeling guilty the next morning. And you know what's good? I'm going to remember what I did. <laughs> and I looked, and I remember saying to him, this is what life is supposed to be about. Enjoying it. Enjoying life. Healthy ways of enjoying life. God wants to put laughter in your heart and in your soul. He wants to put a smile on your face. He wants, he wants you to enjoy the freedom that you were created to enjoy. But if you were to ask most non-Christians about Christianity, they'd say, man, I don't want any part of that. Why is that? That bothers me. That really does bother me. Why is that? I mean, don't they see the joy and the freedom that flows our way because we are forgiven in Christ Jesus? Can't they see the deep satisfaction and the peace that flows our way because of God's grace? And I'm afraid this is the reality. We've hidden. We have hidden the glory of the cross. We have hidden the beauty of God's grace behind these other things. Legalism and mysticism and and, and, and asceticism. We have hidden the glory of the cross and the freedom it promises behind these other things. And I am telling you, let's not go there. Don't let these threats get hold of your heart. I think, I, 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 I'll, I'll get, close this way. Close this way and we're going to have an altar call. We're actually going to worship the Lord. Mike, I want you to come back and get ready for worship. I'll never forget, I was in ninth grade uh, in India and uh, I had a little money in my pocket and when you're in ninth grade in a boarding school, when you get a little money in your pocket, that means you need to find food somewhere. So I uh, left our school compound and went down into the, into the village that was nearby looking. I was going to buy a loaf. I, I always went down and bought a loaf of bread, hot bread, nothing better. Mm. I can't have that now because I'm on this stupid diet. But uh, when you're 14, you can eat anything and it doesn't matter. Uh, so I remember walking down into the village. And I could see at the bottom of the hill a crowd that had gathered. A couple of hundred people were gathered. And there was something going on in the middle of this crowd. And I couldn't tell what it was. So I kind of pushed my way to the front. And when I got there, I saw a man. And all he had on was basically a little loincloth. We called them dhotis. And it, it was tucked up into his waistband. And, and he had a whip in his hands. And uh, apparently the whip at the end of the strands, there, there were pieces of metal or glass or something because he was whipping himself. And when he whipped himself, that glass or metal or whatever it was would cut into his skin. It was leaving welts and deep open wounds in his back and sides. And he would just whip. And, you know, blood was, <laughs> it was crazy. It was almost like the, the crucifixion scene, or not the crucifixion, but the, the beating scene in, in uh, the passion. Just, I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't know what was going on. I had never seen anything like that in India or anywhere else. And I asked a friend, one of the villagers in the community, I knew him, I said, what, what, what's going on? And he told me, he said, this man, he has a son who is sick and about to die. And this man is trying to get the attention of his God. And he thinks that if he can just shed enough blood, suffer enough pain that he'll get his God's attention and his God will heal his son. Now listen, I'm 14. I'm not much of a theologian. I wasn't much of a Christian, to be honest with you. But even at that point, I thought to myself, I'm so glad my God's not like that. My God took stripes upon his back for me. My God went to the cross and died for me. I don't have to do anything to get his attention. I've already got his attention. Now he's asking me, will you look to me? 
Will you look to me for life? Will you look to me for salvation? He's done everything he can do to get our attention. He went to the cross and died in our place. He suffered, bled, and died for our salvation, for our freedom. He's not asking us to do that for him. He did it for us. Do you get the power of that? Religion says, I've got to do all these things. I've got to make the sacrifice. I've got to, to pay the price. I've got to endure the pain. I've got to suffer to get God. That's religion. The cross, the gospel says, God did that for us. Do you trust him? Do you trust that the price he paid on that cross is enough to pay the price for your sins? That's all it's about. It's about trusting that what God says is true. Do you believe it? Will you walk in it? You don't need to do any more to be saved. You don't need to do any more to be made more holy. All you have to do is believe God now and then walk with him. Then walk with him in this new life that he's given you in Christ Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?